Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we're joined by portfolio managers Connor Gordon and Chris Malidzinski as they discuss the kinds of opportunities that they are unearthing in small cap companies across the globe. They co-manage the top-rated Fidelity Global Small Caps Opportunities Institutional Trust. Please note today's podcast was originally presented as a live webcast for institutional investors. Connor explains their investment strategy, which includes quality plus change equals mispricing. They search for situations where there is change and dislocation, which creates uncertainty. Through that uncertainty, with Fidelity's research advantage, they try to find situations where they can form a differentiated view of the future. Chris adds, in the small cap space, it really is prone to mispricing and dislocation. They look for exceptional management teams, companies that have really high return on invested capital, and more importantly, large growth runways in front of them. This podcast was recorded on November 9th, 2023. Joining me today to discuss the global small cap space are portfolio managers Connor Gordon and Chris Melodzinski. Connor and Chris, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Brian. So why don't we start off with a bit of an introduction to the strategy. Connor, uh, tell us, you know, what you're doing and and, uh, and a little bit about how you approach uh, small caps. Yeah, I think, you know, we start with the basis that, you know, to outperform the benchmark, you have to do something different than the benchmark, right? So we um, take a strategy of, you know, we define it as quality plus change equals mispricing. So think of, of quality as the filter and change in dislocation as the trigger. And I think we start with the basis that the market's pretty efficient, right? In the middle, the market's pretty efficient, but there's a bit of a flaw. Uh, the market extrapolates. So we really search for situations where there is you know, change in dislocation, which creates uncertainty. And through that uncertainty, with Fidelity's research advantage, we try to find situations where we can form a differentiated view of the future, right? So um, you know, 6,400 stocks roughly um, in the benchmark. Um, and then we use quality. So, um, you know, to us, that's profitability. It's predictability. So we're looking for companies that have, you know, great free cash flow dynamics, high return on capital that allows them to grow at high rates over time. And then we're looking for predictability, right? We like to be able to look out at least three years and have a pretty good sense of what a company is going to earn in a reasonable range of outcomes, obviously. Um, the future is uncertain. Um, but really putting a big emphasis on predictability. And, you know, uh, Chris and I, over, you know, our time at Fidelity, we've met like hundreds, thousands of companies, right? And we can, we have, you know, what we call focus list um, of called six to 700 stocks globally um, that, you know, meet our quality hurdle. And then what we're doing is really just waiting for something to happen, right? We're waiting for that positive change to us. That can mean a new product. Maybe it's a new management team. Maybe a company is doing an acquisition or an investor or a spinoff, but Something where the structural earnings power of the business is taking a bit of a step change, right? It looks a lot different than it has in the past. And, you know, through that uncertainty, we can have a differentiated view. Kind of on the, on the flip side, we're looking for um, what we call, you know, temporary dislocation. So think of this as good business, temporary but fixable problem. And the key is fixable because many problems are structural. Um, and what we're trying to do is say, okay, this is a good business. It has a temporary problem we can continue to underwrite that earnings growth over, you know, three, four years. And over a period as the, you know, the problem resolves itself, the problem gets fixed, we can underwrite multiple expansion. And I think when, what we do is when we focus on these kind of tails of the market, we avoid the efficient middle. 
And I think if you invest in efficient markets, you're going to get average returns. So we're looking for those tails, those exceptions, the exception to the rule that can give us some really exceptional returns. Great, Chris. I, I, I wonder, I mean, you were talking just about being exciting asset class. What, what are you seeing from the space? Uh, why, why is it so exciting? Yeah, I mean, like for, for Connor and I, I mean, the, the big thing is it doesn't suffer from the law of large numbers, right? So we're looking for these exceptional management teams, these exceptional companies that have really high return on investing capital, but more importantly, um, large growth runways uh, in front of them, right? So um, we're able to, you know, invest in these companies that have three, five, 10 years of runway into the future to compound above market rates of return. And it's much harder to do that um, in our large cap counterparts when you're starting from a trillion dollar market valuation. When you're looking at the small cap space, well, I guess what defines small cap in, in your fund? And uh, are these companies, you know, across all sectors or any different areas of the markets? Um, what are you looking at? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think small cap in a Canadian context versus the global context, maybe there needs to be a little bit of differentiation. So, um, you know, when the the average market cap of the uh, you know company that we're investing in is roughly called five billion dollars, might be the average in, in for, for for the mandate. Um, you know, we tend to focus on companies uh, in that, you know, billion to call it 10 billion market cap range, um, you know, that have ample daily liquidity that, um, that, that we can invest in. So I think in, in, a, in a Canadian context, I think many you know, people think of, um, you know, small caps as, you know, junior mining companies or unprofitable tech companies with, you know, a strategy on a, on a, on a whiteboard and you know, a couple of people in a garage. But we're really doing kind of going back to that, you know, that quality, that hurdle, you know, focus on profitable, proven businesses, right? Business models that generate tons of cash that, you know, have, have been, uh, pro have proven growth prospects and can, can continue to grow into the future. Um, you know, that, you know, versus, you know, speculative companies that have, you know, unproven business models, um, uh, and, and shaky prospects. Chris, what makes Fidelity just so well positioned to run a global small cap strategy? Yeah. So um, to our earlier point, you know, we have over 140 analysts uh, across the globe um, that Connor and I can leverage. So these are analysts that are sitting in Asia, sitting in North America, sitting in Australia, sitting in Europe. Um, and we're able to communicate them uh, with them in, in real time. Right. So we can send them a message, stay on top of our current holdings, generate new ideas. And, you know, we're um, on a face to face Zoom conversation, you know, a few minutes after messaging them. So. I think that's a big differentiation between um, Fidelity and our peer set. I mean, I think that a lot of our peers have two, three or four people um, sitting in one office trying to cover the globe. And I think um, we do things a little bit differently. Um, and furthermore, I mean, our emphasis on bottom up research at Fidelity, I think, is a, a big differentiator. Um, you know, we spent over 10 years um, as analysts, Connor and I, on respective sectors. And as analysts, you know, you spend more than half your time on the road meeting with management teams, going to conferences, doing site visits, really kicking the tires, making sure that you have an edge um, on your existing holdings as well as, you know, generating generating new ideas. So I think that um, the amount of resources we have to dedicate to the research process uh, sets us uh, apart from our peers. Yeah, I'll maybe just add on to that, Brian. You know, I think with a global mandate, I think it's really imperative that the firm have global resources, right? And I think as Chris, Chris touched on, you know, 140 analysts around the world who wake up every single day right? They are meeting companies. They are going to trade shows. Um, they're publishing research uh, on, our, on our internal system and then filtering that up to portfolio managers like Chris and I. Um, so when you can sit down with the team and leverage that, those best ideas from around the world, you know, it becomes the, the job for Chris and I 
to then kind of, you know, put those ideas into a relatively concentrated portfolio, call it, you know, we, we, the bulk of the value at risk is in the top 40 to 50 names uh, globally, right? So we really get, you know, cream of the crop, try and find the best ideas from our analyst team that fit that criteria that, that I was speaking to earlier, right? We're looking for that positive change or that temporary dislocation. And when we can do that, um, you know, we have the people, we have the idea generation potential to really keep the bar high. And when we keep the bar high, we think we can deliver some really nice returns over time. Can you talk a little bit more just about, you know, how the analysts um, work funnels up to you? Are you talking to them? You said there's you know, a lot of research they're doing. How do you how do you incorporate those ideas? And how often are you and Chris kind of talking about uh, where to take the strategy? I mean, perfect example. So um, I am flying to our London office on Saturday night. Right. So um, I'll, I'll be there. I think we have 60 people uh, on the European team there. And I'm attending a conference. So, for example, so a U- UK Smidcap conference, Monday, Tuesday, um, and then sitting down with our team uh, for two days, right? So it's a really collaborative approach where, you know, um, you know, some of the analysts will attend meetings with me. Um, and then, you know, I'll sit down with the meet, you know, the people that, you know, that's just UK, obviously. And then our European team as well, sit down and just go through our best ideas and make sure, hey, you know, are we on top of all the best ideas that our analysts have? Um, and I think that's really imperative um, when you're running a global mandate. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of companies, a lot of news flow, a lot of, you know, things happening geographically, a lot of things happening within sectors, right? And they can, they can, you know, vary by, you know, there are different sector trends within different geographies, right? So you need to be on top of these things. And I think having a team, um, with open lines of communication really enhance that dynamic. Uh, Chris, I'm curious about, about meeting with CEOs. I mean, you both mentioned that, you know, you're meeting with people. How often are you having those conversations with, you know, the top people in these companies, um, and and is it you know on on that best ideas list are those the companies you're talking to or or is it broader than that? Yeah, I mean you know if you look at our you know global meeting schedule, I think there's probably between ten and twenty meetings um, that are hosted globally every any given day, right? So um, you know we use this obviously for idea generation as well as you know our existing holdings um, within the portfolio, and it's a really good way to. Um, you know, get a sense of their capital allocation ability. You know, when we meet um, CEOs and CFOs, we want to make sure that, you know, they're putting uh, fund holders uh, money to work in a, in a profitable way. So we want to make sure that those incremental returns that they're generating are extremely attractive. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if you if you look across the globe, um, you know, in Toronto, I think today, roughly, you know, 10 meetings um, that, that are that are in house. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things, you know, so I hosted, a, for example, you know, a Swedish company this morning. Um, and, you know, we often you ask about the quality list and like we meet companies, we're constantly meeting companies. And some, you know, some some people ask, like, you know, why do you keep meeting the, you know, the, you know companies, the same companies year after year after year? And a big part of it is, um, you know, institutional knowledge and, and creating a baseline. Right. So, you know, your part of our job is to evaluate people. And, you know, part of evaluating people is ultimately. Did they do what they said they were going to do? Right. So we have, you know, uh, an internal uh, research database that goes back, uh, I mean, goes back 20, 30 years. Um, and so when we are doing research on a name, one of the great things that we can do is we have this like historical uh, time capsule of, you know, we are meeting, you know, it could have been three, four CEOs ago. Right. But you can kind of see that evolution of a company through historical research. Right. And I think just for us, it's, it's imperative to, you know, write that down. Have it recorded so that, you know, we can go back and then the next time we meet a company, 
you know, maybe they're trying, maybe they are, have delivered on the targets. Maybe they've changed, you know, changed the goalposts, right? But if you're, but you're not going to know whether what they're doing, if you haven't recorded that and you haven't met and you have a historical baseline to compare against. So that's one of the things, you know, that we, that we like to do is just, you know, constantly meet new companies. And the reality is too, sometimes you meet a company and you'd say, um, you know, this doesn't sound like a company I might invest in, but the world changes, right? The world, the, the world changes, the economies change, businesses change. Um, and, you know, kind of going back to that emphasis that we have on positive change, sometimes, uh, you know, a company might have a new product and it can, can completely change the operating dynamics uh, that business has. Um, so you're constantly meeting these companies because you don't know when there's going to be a new opportunity to come up. Yeah, and just, I guess, touching on Connor's point with that note system, I mean, it's it's a very quick way uh, for Connor and I to get up to speed on a new company. Uh, because if you look at the breadth of our research coverage, um, you know, spanning back decades, you know, within an afternoon, we have a pretty good idea of the corporate history and of the corporate, um, uh, the management teams and how they've changed over year, over the years. And so I think that's a very big differentiator versus uh, versus our peers. Great. The, the, let's talk about the strategy itself. I mean, we've talked about so your approach, which we can dig into a little more, but, but tell me about the global small cap opportunity strategy itself. Um, you know, you, you are looking for the best stocks. How does that sort of work, uh, around the world? Do you have uh, more concentration in certain geographies or just what's, what's in this, in this strategy? Sure. Yeah. So it's a global go anywhere, uh, best ideas fund. And so we're looking to just put the best ideas, um, across the fidelity complex into, uh, the portfolio, regardless of where they may be located or what sectors they are in. And, um, you know, we can leverage our own experiences, um, as analysts rotating among different sectors over the past 15 years, um, as well as, uh, you know, our analysts, uh, best ideas. So we're not looking to put, you know, X percent of the fund, um, say in chemicals or X percent in consumer. It's just building the portfolio, uh, from a bottom up basis and delivering all the alpha from idiosyncratic, um, you know, stock returns. Um, and so if you, if you look across, um, I guess the geographic kind of allocation, um, we're overweight North America now, but that's, um, you know, an output, not a, not an input. That's where we're seeing the most value. And given the concentrated nature of the fund, you know, those geographic allocations will move around over time, depending on where, um, our best ideas, uh, will surface from. Yeah. I think philosophically, Brian, um, you know, we often say, you just think of the Canadian context, but you know, if you're investing in a, in a Canadian only small cap fund, for example, you're only seeing 5% of the global opportunity set, right? If you're investing in a U.S. only uh, small cap fund, you're seeing roughly 50, 55% of the opportunity set. And our, as Chris said, you know, our philosophy is let's take the biggest opportunity set we can find, right? Um, let's not be pigeonholed by geography and let's just go bottom up um, and find the best opportunities that we can. And I think, you know, our allocations, we, you know, we like to say that volatility creates dislocation, dislocation creates mispricing. And it's in those times of volatility um, that we can really differentiate and, and the fund or the, the, the mandate and the, and the strategy can really differentiate its return profile. And I think what that allows you to do is, you know, when you're not constrained, you can go where the opportunities are, right? Our, our you know, our, our, our turnover, our allocations are very opportunistic, you know, oppor- you know, fidelity, global, uh, small cap opportunities, you know, it's in the name. We want to be opportunistic um, and not you know, have as few constraints as possible. Obviously, there's a few, um, you know, risk risk constraints around sector allocation, et cetera. But we really don't want to be pigeonholed. Um, and I think what, what you've seen historically is, 
you know, that global go anywhere philosophy on the fund, um, really focusing on what Fidelity does well. And what Fidelity does well is idiosyncratic stock specific research, right? I don't, what we want to do, and I, you know, we, we talk about that positive change, that temporary dislocation, focus on the companies. We want the returns to come from, um, stock selection and historically 90, a little over 90% of the alpha is attributable to stock selection. And we don't want to get into the trap of making an implicit factor bet being, you know, making a very large geographic bet, making a very large sector bet. We want the returns of the, of, of the strategy to come from that stock selection, because I think that's what Chris and I do well. It's what Fidelity does well. And I think it's how we differentiate ourselves over time rather than making uh, very large macro top-down bets. Yeah, and Brian, I, I think uh, another point that we just can't emphasize enough is um, the amount of um, emphasis that we put on corporate governance. And so, you know, when you look at our geographic allocation, we're, you know, overweight North America. And I think a lot of that is that that's where you find the best management teams. Um, and so we want to make sure, you know, in the small cap uh, landscape that we don't get caught offside investing in a management team that's just looking to enrich themselves or, you know, make poor deals, bad capital allocation. We want to make sure that every dollar that they're investing uh, for our clients is put to is put to good use. And so um, I think that's something that we you know pay a lot of attention to. How many how many stocks do you hold in in the strategy? What's what's around the, the number? The, the core what we say, you know, the, the core value at risk that we consider tends to be about 40 to 50 stocks. Um, there's a tail of positions, obviously. I think the most recent disclosure is 72, 72. Uh, stocks. Um, and look, there's always a tail of things that we're working on. Um, you know, uh, you know, we'll take an initial position. We'll, you know, continue to prove out the thesis. Um, and then there's always things that are moving out, right? That's just like the dynamic of, of portfolio management. But the core value at risk tends to be that 40 to 50 names. So, right. um, you know, try to keep it relatively concentrated. Try to maintain a high hurdle. Uh, and try to make ideas count. Like when we're doing the research, when you're right, you want the idea to make an impact. So how do you know, you know, when is it time to sell? Can you keep these companies or do they grow too big that, hey, now we have to kind of, we have to sell these. Um, how do you, what's, what's that selling strategy to keep it um, in the best ideas and that concentrated portfolio? Sure. There, yeah. Uh, there's, a, I guess, a number of uh of way of of um, outcomes, you know, when when, we're, when we sell a stock, it's either you know we're wrong on the stock, our thesis is um, is is proven to be invalid. Um, you know, we take our losses, move on. Um, one thing we we you know make sure we don't do is if we if we have a losing position, um, is to you know wet ourselves to that stock and, and add more as it's going down. So we're pretty quick to cut our losses. And then on the flip side, um, you know, if the stock you know hits the upper end of kind of where we feel that it should be trading. Um, we'll either sell or trim the stock depending on its, its long-term kind of growth outlook. Um, and then the, the third one is just, you know, we have, um, certain, uh, positions that we have that uh, have an embedded catalyst that we're looking for. And when that catalyst plays out, um, the thesis is proved correct and we'll sell and move on to, uh, to our other best ideas. Yeah. I think that one of the things, you know, just going back to risk, uh, Brian, you know, I think another, you know, one of the, you know, kind of Chris touched on it, but you know, one of the key reasons to sell is sometimes you just have a better idea. Right. And so keeping that hurdle high, what we try to do um, when we're looking at a new idea, it's not just is this good enough to be in the strategy? It's is this better than something we already own? And going back to my prior point of not wanting to make large, implicit bets is, for example, for, you know, if we're looking at um, a chemical company, for example, um, it's not just, OK, is this better? It's like, do we already own? Do we have already have exposure to chemicals? Right. But maybe that idea is 
better. We can, you know, you can, we're always looking to high grade the portfolio, right? We're always trying to maintain the embedded future returns and keep the, the you know, the, the prospective returns of the portfolio as high as it can be. So it's, a lot of it, it can just be high grading the portfolio. Um, you touched on size uh, or, or had a question on size. Uh, the, 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 the strategy does not have a hard sunset clause. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, there is, uh, 30% of the mandate, um, can be above the small cap index. And the whole point of that is, you know, if we find a two, $3 billion company that we've known and we own, you know, have known, known for a long time, we've done a lot of the diligence. Um, we don't want to be forced to sell if you find one of those really good long-term compounders. So right. we do have a bit of, uh, wiggle room, uh, call it to continue to hold the, you know, the, 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 you know, the small caps that become maybe maybe mid caps, right? Every time we do these uh, with you guys, I, I always love the rapport between both of you. So um, I'm sure people are wondering, how do you complement each other's styles, and why why Connor and Chris together on this um, on this strategy? Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll take that yep. one. Um, so we started at Fidelity back in 2008, 2009, um, and. I don't know if you're familiar, but we have a, a rotation program among analysts. And so Connor covered healthcare, um, IT, as well as industrials, and I covered um, everything else. So consumer, communication services, financials, um, and resources. And so the idea is, you know, Connor and I view the world very similarly, invest very similarly. You put us two together and we have the whole market covered. Um, and over and above that, I mean, we also have, you know, built in, you know, devil's advocates so we can, um, you know, debate ideas um, and really come to a better answer by uh, by putting us both together. Donner, anything to add to that? No, it's, you know, exactly what Chris said. I think, you know, when, you, you know, we have this historic, we call it spheres of influence, right? So um, Chris is, you know, the financials expert. And then I get to, you know, if, if we have an, a financial or insurance company in the fund, you know, I get to poke holes in the thesis, right? So every one, you know, and it's, and I think it's, you know, probably a good point, you know, we all, every, every, our reasons for owning a stock are always recorded, right? So if our thesis is, you know, X, Y, and Z, um, you know, I get to say, well, you know, on point, you know, Z, have you considered this, right? I was, you know, I was in London last week. I was meeting with a competitor. They were saying this, you know, what, 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 how, how does that impact the stock, right? So you're always, you know, when you have two of us, uh, when we have that team of 140 people around the world, you can, you're always trying to, you know, update your information, right? Every day in the market, it's like going to, you know, it's like a card game, right? Every day in the market, a new car gets turned over, you get new information and you're trying to constantly update your view for new information. And I think when you have, um, two people that view the world similarly, but have different historical background, you know, you can really push each other to try and, you know, get to the best answer. Great. We have uh, just a couple of minutes left. I know we have a couple um, examples uh, that illustrate your strategy. Chris, um, what's the uh, sort of stock example that uh, you have that can really kind of drive this home? Yeah, sure. We have a, a ton of examples, probably only time for, for one each. Um, but Fairfax Financial is uh, is one that uh, is in the fund uh, that we've owned for a couple of years. And so if you think about Fairfax, really high quality company, um, it's compounded its book value per share by 15% since inception in 1985. Um, but the tough part um, about, you know, an, being an insurance company is that you're subject to interest rates, right? You have a big fixed income portfolio and, you know, the 10 years post GFC um, under a zero interest rate regime um, was very tough uh, for a lot of these companies, right? So returns went down, valuations uh, came down, and especially so for Fairfax because they weren't willing to reach for yield um, as a lot of their, their peers did. So, um, you know, if you look at their financial results um, from 2010 to 2020, 
they were actually um, very inferior to what they were from 1985 to 2010, right? So their returns came down to mid-single digits. Their book value uh, multiple that they were trading at in the market came down to below one times, um, deservedly so, and the market kind of left it for dead. But um, when we were looking at the market in 2021, um, you know, the Fed started lifting off, off zero, and we were looking at, you know, which insurance company globally is best positioned for that. Well, you come back to Fairfax with that big cash uh, portfolio that they had, and, and they were, and they were also trading at a, uh, you know, 30 to 40% discount to book value. And so that's exactly what we're looking for, you know, um, an under-earning company that has really bright future prospects and trading at a discounted valuation. So you fast forward to today, um, you know, they're earning $30 a share and their book value multiple has gone from a 40% discount um, to trading at one times book. And, and so if you think about it today, you know, the future is really bright, you know, they should deliver a 15, 16% return on equity, uh, which deserves a premium to book value. And today it's trading at one times. Great, Connor. Sharing you know, maybe go, going back to my healthcare uh, roots, you know, um, company that we, the, we continue to own uh, is a company called Demont. Demont is a Danish hearing aid company. Uh, and, you know, this is kind of an example of you know why we go global, right? Um, there's five companies in the world that make hearing aids. Four, the, you know, really four kind of core, and they're all in Europe, right? So um, sometimes you get access. You know, when you when you expand that opportunity set, you expand that universe, you get access to companies that you know, are only in a certain geography, for example. But, um, you know, hearing aids, always a, a great long-term industry structure. I'd always admired the company. They had grown at, you know, high single-digit rates for a long period of time, right? Um, oligopolistic industry structure, right? Four people, uh, four companies that make it. So margins were always really high. Um, but the stock was always, you know, perennially too expensive, right? It always trade at 25, 30 times earnings. And, you know, that is just, you know, it was always at a, at a level that, you know, we couldn't underwrite the returns that Chris and I are, are looking for. But around the time we uh, launched Mandate back in 2019, uh, something happened. They got hit with a cyber attack, right? So this is an example of that good business gets hit by a temporary problem. There's a lot of market uncertainty, right? Their, their ERP system is screwed up. They don't know what, you know, basically for six, nine months, they have no idea what sales and profits are going to be. They profit worn. There's a lot of uncertainty, but we can look out two or three years and be confident in what the earnings power of that business looks like, right? So it trades down to a level that we think is called 15 times earnings. And we still get that, you know, underlying growth, call it eight to 10%. And then over time, you get that re-rating in the multiple. That's kind of like an archetype of kind of what we are looking for. And when I talk about that, you know, great business, temporary problem. Great, I wish we could keep going, but uh, I'm gonna leave it there. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. 
funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.